All right, good morning. How are you? So good to see you. Normally, I like to walk around, shake hands, say hi to you uh, before the service started, but I was getting ready for the baptism, so that's an okay reason not to say hi, so I'll say it right now. Hey, how are you? I hope you're doing good. I really do. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 4. If you're new with us or if you've uh, kind of started hanging out with us in the last couple of weeks, we are spending the year going through the entire Bible. And uh, we spent the last seven or so weeks in Genesis. And so we are starting a new series today. Uh, it's going to look at Exodus and then a little bit of Joshua. And as we move through that, it's just the series kind of build together. So it's the one big long story broken into smaller chunks. I went to, uh, I got my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's degree from a school in Dallas called Criswell College. And at that school, um, it's where Jackie and I both went, uh, at that school for the undergraduate level, both Greek and Hebrew are required. Uh, it's normally a master's level course, but for whatever reason, uh, the school was mad at us. And so they required both of those languages, two semesters of it, in the undergraduate level. And I took Greek and it wasn't easy, but it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. But Hebrew is the worst, all right? It is the absolute worst. And I, it was required, so, you know, I went and had to go ahead and sign up for it. When I got the books, the required books, I skimmed through them and I thought to myself, I cannot do this. There's no way that I'm gonna be able to read or understand or study Hebrew. And then the first day of class, the professor uh, let us know that unlike Greek, Hebrew has very few words that translate straight into English, that transpose straight into English. You know, Greek, it's like, uh, give me a word, any word, and I will show you that the root is a Greek, all right? That's Greek, all right? But that's not Hebrew. And Hebrew has very few words. And sitting there in the very first class of the very first day, not out loud, but in my mind, I thought, I can't do this. There's no way that I'm going to be able to learn Hebrew. He went on to explain that the Jews, Hebraic language reads from right to left. So backwards, all right, from my American perspective, it is backwards and I am not going to be able to do this. I just can't possibly do this. Then he further explained that biblical Hebrew has no vowels, all right? It's not there. It's not in the original. You just have to make them up. I'm kidding. There's, there's reasons why we put them there, but you just have to sort of know where to put the vowel markings in this language. And everything in me thought, I cannot do this. I can't learn Hebrew, right? But it's a required course, so I just kept showing up. And day after day, class after class, I put in my time, I put in my effort, and I failed miserably. <laughs> right up to the point of the drop. So if you've gone to um, college, you know there is a time when you can drop the course without it affecting your overall GPA. And on that day, at the end of class, I stood up, walked down to the registrar's office, and I said, I can't take Hebrew. I can't learn Hebrew. She looked at my grade and she said, no, you cannot. <laughs> it's a required course. You have to do it. So she let me drop. The next semester rolled around. I took a different professor who was no less hard but taught differently. And I passed that semester. I forgot what I made in that class. I think I barely passed, but I passed nonetheless. Nobody ever checks your grades on your transcript. I'll just tell you that. I passed that course. And I think that um, the point is that with God's help and Dr. Worsler, I passed 
Hebrew. It's what I needed, and I went through that. All of those times that I thought I can't, well, I could. All of those times that I think I couldn't, but in the end, I did. And we all do that. We all, at different stages in our lives and at different challenges, we think to ourselves, I can't do this. And we think that even before often we try. We think we can't do it before we have even tried. How many of you, one day you were in a hospital room with your spouse, your wife has just delivered a child, you know, and then the nurse comes in and they say, you're good to go. And you think, we can't leave. We're not taking this thing out of here. We don't know what we're doing, you know. Anybody else felt that way? We felt that way. I was like, can we stay just for like 18 more years? We don't know what we're doing here. That sort of thing. Some of you have tried to buy a fixer-upper, you know, a house. And you get in there and you tear out the floors and a couple of walls. And you find out that it takes more than Southern Charm and 30-minute television show to flip a house. And you're looking at this bare bones house with your spouse sitting there going, we can't live here. This isn't going to work. You ever start a new workout? You think to yourself, okay, 5K, that's the bottom, right? So 5K, 3.1 miles, I'm going to try this. You run one lap and you stop and you look and say, that's good for today. That's good for today. I can't do three miles. We do this all the time, all the time in all sorts of areas of our lives, whether we are trying a new food or whether we're learning a new skill or or a new workout or something like that. We think to ourselves, I can't do this. We have this self-perception of limitations. We think that we can't and in the end, we end up doing it. Our perception is, even though we'll fail a few times, that we limit ourselves in these massive ways. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, do we ever project that sort of self-limitation on God? Is it ever that we think, I can't, so he can't? Is it ever possible that we limit, or we think we can limit, what it is that God can do in and through us. The main character of our story today is named Moses. And Moses tries to limit God and it doesn't go very well. God sets him straight and teaches Moses and you and me that he can do far more through us than we could ever imagine. In fact, what God teaches Moses there on the backside of the desert is this very simple phrase. You can't, but God can't. Let's pray together and then we'll look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for those who this morning followed you in baptism. Who made a public profession to the world that says, I can't, but God can through me. Who redeems my soul. Who from this point forward will follow you as their savior and have been walking with you. God, I I pray for those who haven't yet done that, that they would. I pray for those of us in this room this morning that we would set aside any sort of distractions, whether internal or external, that we would zero in on what it is that you say. So often, God, we are so blinded by our own self-given limitations that we, we don't even try to follow you. So God, I pray whatever it is you're calling us to do in our own individual lives and in our own worlds, that we would recognize and leave here today knowing I can't but God can. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.
Exodus chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. I'll read this. You follow along. It's going to be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to get one. There's some in the lobby uh, that you can have. There's those in the seat back that you can have. Exodus is the second book in what we call the Old Testament. This is what the Word of God says. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Let's pause right there. I just did something uneloquent. I need to tell you the context of what's going on in this story. You shouldn't start stuff with buts, all right? And so let me tell you what's going on, all right? So last week we talked about Joseph, and Joseph was one of the patriarchs. He is the second in command in Egypt. There's this big famine. He reunites with his father and his family, brings them to Egypt into a land called Goshen, and in a city, like a community in Egypt called Goshen. And they stay there for hundreds of years, close to 400 years, and they multiply, they grow. There is a ton of them. It just a bunch of Israelis living there in Egypt, there arises a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph, and he becomes insecure about all of these Israelis living within his country. So him and his advisors uh, do the unspeakable. They enslave the Jews. They treat them very poorly, and they even kill some of the infants and that sort of stuff. And it's during this very dark season, very this very dark time, that one of the Jews is born, and his name is Moses. And as Moses grows in age, he, through this very crazy series of events, is adopted by the princess of Egypt. He grows up there in the palace and in Pharaoh's schools and teachings and stuff. And then once he's an adult, um, through another series of events, he murders one of the Egyptians. And he takes off running. He goes off running to the backside of the desert. And there in the backside of the desert, God speaks to him, which is, side note, something very interesting about God and the way that he works. God is often speaking to and calling those who are running from something. All right. And so there on the backside of the desert, God speaks to Moses. And there he calls Moses and he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and help Lead my people out of slavery. Lead my people out of bondage. It's what the song we just sang talked about, that you heard prayers then. God says, I hear that. I hear what's going on in Egypt, and I want you to go back and help them. Moses gives four excuses in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Four excuses about why he cannot do it. The first one is, who am I? I can't do that. I mean, like me? You want me to go back? And God says, go. Then uh, Moses responds and says, well, then who are you? What am I going to say is your name? And I go back and God says, my name is I am. You go. The third one, he says, well, what if they don't believe me? God says, I've got some some stuff for that. Um, So go. And then the fourth one is, he says, well, what if I can't? What if I'm unable? And God says, go like that. I think that was in the original Hebrew, but remember, I barely passed. And so he says, go. And so it's that last excuse that I really want to focus in on. All right. Sorry about being uneloquent, but Moses was. Verse 10, but Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you have been speaking to your servant right now because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. And the Lord said to him, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? It, is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. It is that last excuse, that last reason Moses doesn't want to go that I want to focus in on here this morning. God calls Moses to do something. Moses says, well, what if I can't? What if I am not good at it? Let's look at 
sort of what Moses says. What is he talking about when he says, my mouth is sluggish. My mouth and my tongue are sluggish. What exactly is he saying? It's a bit confusing in both languages, honestly. He literally says that his mouth is heavy. He is sluggish. What it means could be any number of things. There's a bunch of theories. We don't exactly know, but here's a few of the theories. One of the theories is that Moses is saying, I have forgotten my Egyptian, right? He grew up in Egypt. He was trained in the Egyptian schools. Now he has spent 40 years being a shepherd on the backside of the desert, and he hasn't used his Egyptian very much. And so he thought to himself, maybe I have forgotten um, exactly how to use that language. Anybody take Spanish in high school? Anybody... Can't say anything other than, you know, taco, <laughs> salsa, queso, all right? Maybe that's, what, maybe that's what Moses is saying. I forgot my Egyptian. Another one that could be is that Moses knows some of his Egyptian. It's just unpolished, right? He's been a shepherd for 40 years. He's not really speaking the king's English, and his Egyptian isn't very good. And so maybe he's thinking, I'm sluggish. I'm not real great. God, what? I can't go back. I can't go and do this because... I'm not really great at my Egyptian anymore. Another one, which is probably the most common theory, is that Moses has some sort of impediment. That he either has a stutter or a lisp. And that certainly could be what he is saying here. Another one that most scholars or many scholars believe is actually what's going on here is that there's nothing wrong with Moses at all. There's no inability. There's no lack of knowledge. It's just that Moses is doing what we call exaggerated humility. He's, he can speak just fine. It's just that he's acting as if he can't be called to do this very lofty task because he is not worthy. This is found over and over throughout the Bible. King Saul said that he was from a very, uh, a, a nobody sort of family and yet he was from a very prominent family. David once mentioned not being very well known, and yet he was already a celebrated war hero with songs that were describing him. Jeremiah said that he could not speak, but yet he could very eloquently with very good command of his language. And Paul says that he is the worst sinner in the entire world, which we would all believe is a bit of an exaggeration. There is this idea in which when somebody is asked to do something, it is proper, it is good, it is respectful to be humble about the situation. I think that makes a lot of sense because even God himself describes Moses as being extremely humble. It's just the way that Moses was. Furthermore, in this text, I read one commentary said that Moses uses 21 Hebrew words arranged in a somewhat complicated expression to say that he's not good at talking. It was a figure of speech. Moses is exaggerating his humility. I think there's another theory that I would um, possibly posit is that, and we do this too, Moses was trained in the very best schools in the world at that time. And so maybe it was that Moses knew really eloquent speakers, you know? Moses knew the very best speakers. So he thought to himself, comparison-wise, I'm not as good as them. Call one of them. I'm not quite that level. It's like when you listen to sports talk and somebody will talk about an NBA player as being horrible. There are no NBA players that are horrible. Every single one of them are amazing athletes. And yet it's on a comparison within the NBA, you know, they may not be uh, the best, which is Michael Jordan, by the way, not the other guy. And so this is maybe what 
it is that Moses is doing. But what is it? What is the concern that Moses? God called him, and if you look back at chapter three, verse ten, God tells him to go back to Egypt and to deliver his people, to lead his people out of Egypt. And so we just have to stop for just a second and ask the question: Why is Moses so intent on and focused in on the way that he speaks? Wouldn't you imagine that what God was actually calling Moses to do was to just go and stand near, near the, like the Egypt city limit sign or something like that. And God would round them all up and bring them all out. And Moses would say, all right, follow Rafiki. He know the way. And then start taking off that direction. Wouldn't that be what Moses was supposed to do? But Moses knew, Moses knew what we all know, that he was going to have to speak. He was going to have to use language. And listen, anytime. Anytime you are going to lead people out of bondage, anytime you are going to lead people out of slavery, you're going to have to use words. You're going to have to communicate in some way. And Moses knew that he was going to have to do two things that are incredibly difficult. And it's not just a matter of speaking words, but in the way and to whom he was going to speak. One is he was going to have to speak truth to power. He's going to have to stand in front of the most powerful person on the planet and say, this is what the more powerful wants you to do. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do if you're speaking to an authority figure or a boss or something like that. It's hard to do it that. The other thing is that Moses was going to have to stand in front of the multitude. He's going to have to stand in front of a huge crowd and speak to them. And that is hard to do. What if he's rejected? What if he's pushed to the side? What if they don't listen to him? What if they don't like the way he speaks or what he says. What if he's embarrassed and ridiculed and pushed off to the side? Two ideas here that are really dominating Moses' mind right now. What if I can't and I'm afraid to even try? What if I can't? Ability and I'm afraid to even try. Let me pause and just ask you, every single one of you. So like, what's your excuse? Does it sound more like what Moses says here when, when God says very clearly that we all admit, that we all would acknowledge that God wants us to speak, to go, to, to, to rescue the perishing, to, to, to care for the dying? Does God want you to go and to share the gospel with your friends and with your family and with your neighbors? And we well up within us some sort of excuse like, but I'm, I'm sort of shy. I'm an introvert. That's for extroverted people to do. What if they have questions and I don't know the answers? Doesn't it sound like a lot of times what we say within our own minds is just like what Moses was saying there at that bush that was on fire, but it did not burn. There's an almost shocking level of self-doubt in Moses is expressing here. Not just the I can, but in all of the other excuses as well. You would expect the hero, the would-be rescuer of God's people to be self-assured, self-confident, maybe even bordering on arrogant. And yet Moses is not that way. He has no self-esteem. He has no self-confidence. He doesn't believe that he can do this. He is a doubter. And we find that to be so incongruent. We find it not to work out well. Why? Because we have come to believe that only the self-assured are ever used by God. Only those that are confident and uh, strong-willed and self-assured, only those are the ones that God used. And so let me tell you this, my friend, that's just not true. You don't have to be self-assured. You don't have to be self-confident. In fact, everyone that God uses in the Bible doubts. 
The emphasis here is very clearly on his own ability or knowledge or acumen or confidence. It's all growing out of a focus on himself. And to be honest with you, I can relate to that. What God is calling Moses to do here is huge. This is a massive task. This is a daunting challenge. This is a massive ordeal that you would have to spend a little bit of time with a little bit of self-reflection, except for there is one overarching dominant reality that's going on with what God is calling Moses to do, and that is people are dying. People are hurting. So at the very least... What you would have to say to yourself, what you would have to grab Moses by the face and just shake him a little bit and say is, I know you're scared. I know you don't think you can, but people are hurting. So at least try. That's what God's doing with Moses there. Maybe that's what God's doing with us. God takes Moses' response and he redirects it. What did Moses say? Moses said, I can't. I can't. God redirects and responds to Moses by turning him toward the greater I. Let's read verse 11 again. And it says, the Lord said to him, who placed a mouth on humans, who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind. Is it not I? Moses says, I can't. God responds with, but I can The first of the claims, one of the reasons that God believes that he can take care of this is that he says, I made your mouth. I made your mouth, your ears, your eyes. I made you. This is really obvious. God made human mouths so he knows what it is that they can do. He knows that with our mouth and with our words and with our encouragement, we can build up or we can tear down. He knows the strength and the power that we have within our words. That's why we have to be so very careful with what it is that we say, what it is that you post, what it is that you comment, what it is that you remark, even thinking, well, I didn't mean anything by it. Our words are incredibly powerful and God knows that. God says, I know, I know. So even if Moses was the most eloquent, God says, I know exactly who it is that you are. In some respects, Moses' objection is irreverent. In some respects, Moses' objections are disrespectful. You ever seen that show uh, where they make luxury tree houses? You ever seen that? They have a few of those down in, um, I think it's Fredericksburg, Texas, Shalom. You should look it up. Anybody, anybody gone? I kind of want to go. Nobody? All right. Well, I don't want to go with you. I just want to go with like... Like Jackie. That wasn't an invitation. It was just, I was just telling you about it. All right. So there's these luxury tree houses and it sounds crazy, but it's true. And there's this dude and he's a little bit eccentric, eccentric himself and, and he makes these tree houses and they're really cool. Could you imagine if you contracted that guy to make a luxury tree house and he makes this big, beautiful tree house and it is exactly to your specs and exactly to your personality. And they put that special item in there that makes it all tie into your personality and your desires and all of your wants and wishes and stuff. And then comes the day at the end of the show where you're standing there next to him and he shows you your big tree house and it is beautiful and you say to him is it safe <laughs> he says well yeah i mean of course it's safe i, I mean I, like if i get in it is it gonna fall down he says well no it's not gonna fall down well are you sure i haven't got in it yet what if i get in it and it falls down what if i stand in that and i stand on one side and the whole tree uproots and falls to the side 
Eventually, he's going to become indignant. Eventually, he's going to become mad, and rightfully so. This is his craft. This is what he does. This is his, his, his fame and his reputation. He knows exactly what it is that he is doing. How dare you question what the expert knows? God tells Moses to go and talk. And Moses looks at the one who made his mouth and says, but what if I can't? God says, I made you. I know exactly who you are. It's not only that Moses' objections are irreverent, but they're also ultimately irrelevant. They're not just irreverent, they're irrelevant. Two very powerful statements come from God after this. He says, I will help you and I will teach you. Knowing that God had made Moses, he knows exactly that he will need some help. This is something that God is willing and able to do. Even if Moses was the most eloquent and gifted speaker, we know the story. Pharaoh isn't going to let those people go. Pharaoh's heart is hard and God lets him go that direction. God is going to have to intervene. God is going to have to do mighty and amazing things. And he does do those things. God is going to help him. And we all get into those situations. It does not matter how successful you are, how talented and and famous you might become. At some point, you need help from the outside. As a professional, you may need that one time where the sale just goes through. There's nothing else that you can do. You are just hoping that that sale goes through. You need God to intervene. If you are a young adult or or maybe a single adult, at some point, you just need that right girl to show up in that right coffee shop so you can have that right conversation that eventually will lead to marriage. There's nothing you can do about it. You're just waiting on God to move into those situations. As a parent, we need help every single day. As a student, you're in class, you're studying, you're doing the best you can. And often when I was a student in college and even in high school, I would sit down and go, God, it's up to you now, all right? Did the best I could, I studied. Now I need the maker of the brain to make the brain work. That's what I need in this situation. We all get to a situation And it is wise and it is smart and it is good and it is mature for us to acknowledge. Nobody gets to where they are without some help. We all need God to intervene. So God tells the scared and the intimidated Moses, I will help you. That's so encouraging, right? No matter what it is that God calls you to do, for God to look at you and go, look, I'll help you. There's another thing that God says, and I will teach you. The parts that Moses had to do on his own, the words that he would have to say, the choices that he would have to make, the path that he would have to set, God would teach him. And here's the amazing thing about it. God has already been teaching him. This is one of my favorite parts about this story. Genesis chapter 3, the first couple of verses there are a really big part of the, the project that I did for my doctorate. All right? Genesis chapter three, one of the, the, the overarching theme for my doctorate was to look at leadership as defined by shepherding and where you find, and I looked at four people in the Bible, Moses, David, Jesus, and Peter, and where you find Moses at the very beginning at his calling, when God appears to him in a burning bush, where you find him is what? Shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. It's a very interesting theme that happens throughout the Bible. Where you find David when he gets called is where? Shepherding his father's sheep. John chapter 10, Jesus says that my father gives me the sheep. They are my father's. 
Like in First Peter, Peter says, uh, take care of God's sheep. All of them have this understanding, this acknowledgement. If you were to put the Mount Rushmore of Jewish leaders, Moses and David are first ballot inductees, no doubt about it. And both of them are found shepherding. Moses is taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. David, his dad's sheep. Both are taking care of stubborn sheep that don't belong to them. This is going to be extremely helpful when you start to lead people. When you're taking care of stubborn sheep that don't actually belong to you, I can tell you that is extremely helpful when you are leading God's people. It's just what happens. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says that Moses led the sheep to the far side of the wilderness. Literally, in a few chapters, Moses is going to lead God's people to the far side of the wilderness. In fact, to the very same place that he is having this conversation with God. God has been and will continue to teach Moses what he will need to do. He will help him and he will teach him. We touched on it last week that in the life of Joseph that, Joseph, that God will often work in you before he works through you. And that's exactly what happens to Moses. Through all of the hardships and the trials, the running away, the scared, the being alone, God is working in him so that he can work through him. So many of us are looking for a burning bush experience and God is looking to start a fire in your heart that isn't about your experience, but it's more about your impact. When Moses is told to go, he responds with, but what if I can't? And God says, but you can't because I will go with you. I will help you. I will teach you. Now go. Listen, here's the gospel message and the reality. The true good news is that you are either the one who needs to be rescued. You're enslaved by sin. You're captured by death. And you need to be rescued. You're like the Israelis in Egypt. You need to be freed. And to that I would say, look to the Moses and come up out of that slavery. Or you have been saved you have been rescued to which god is telling you to go back and help them out to go back and help others out the bible teaches us that jesus is the better moses he is the one who has come to deliver us from sin and death and the slavery of brokenness and to lead us to the promised land and so my call to you my friend is that you would recognize and understand that God has called you up out of slavery from sin. And today, right now, would be the time that you trust Jesus. And then that eventually you would make it public, that you would let the world know through baptism that Jesus has saved you. So here's what I want to leave with you today. This phrase, I can't, but God can. I want you to say that within your hearts. I want you to say it. Write it in your notes. Maybe put, some people put like little post-it note things on the mirror where they're getting, maybe that's something. Maybe you're in a, a, in a, in a test of your faith or of your mind and you think to yourself, I can't, but God can't. Now listen, you still have to study for the test. That's how God works through it. But I can't, but God can. When you are confronted or when you're around somebody that needs to hear about the gospel that you think to yourself, I can't, but God can. No matter what the apprehension is, you think, I can't, but God can. Listen, as you follow Jesus out of slavery, toward the promised land, as we walk with Jesus through this life, it is hard. 
This is a long, difficult walk. Not only, you know, reading your Bible every day and praying, that's hard, but then being patient with people, loving your enemies, walking and becoming more like Jesus. When you look at what it is that we are called to do, what it is that we're encouraged to do, what it is that we can get to do in Jesus, it seems like we can't. And the reality is we can't, but God can in us and through us. So we follow him as a church. It's the same thing. I drive from our campus to my house or from our campus to coffee shops or wherever I'm having meetings. And there are just so many people around here. So many cars, so many houses, so many families, schools that are packed, the gills with people and all of them, most of them need to hear about Jesus. And I think, how could our little church, how could, how could this little church make any sort of big impact into this community? How could we do anything in this community? I mean, it's a very nice building and it's some very nice people. And if it weren't for that bald, weird pastor that they have, then they could probably accomplish something. How could we do something? And then I'm just reminded, we can't. Because it ain't our church. It ain't my church. It's God's church. And he can do Whatever he wants to do, he wants to make an impact in this community and he will do it in us and then through us. A lot of you know the story of a man named Desmond Doss. He was a soldier in World War II. And because of his religious beliefs, he enlisted as what's called a non-combatant. He wouldn't carry a weapon and he wouldn't kill another person if he could avoid it. So he wanted to be a medic. He wanted to save people on the battlefield. And according to biographies and many of the stories that are floating around about him, uh, the army or people within the army weren't very nice to him. They would haze him. They would throw shoes at him while he was praying. He had a really rough time. And in 1945, his squad was ordered to take a ridge in Okinawa. My dad was stationed in Okinawa many, many years later. And it was incredibly difficult and dangerous. The jagged cliff is referred to as Hacksaw Ridge. And it's the story, this story and that ridge that inspired the 2016 movie. During the fight, Doss crawled on the ground on his elbows and on his legs. He crawled on the ground in the midst of the worst of the battle. He crawled on the ground and he would take wounded soldiers, drag them to the edge of the cliff, tie a rope around them and lower them down to where other medics and doctors and nurses were waiting. And in that process, he saved over 75 Severely wounded soldiers. Veteran Carl Bentley, who was there, who saw this happen, said, it's as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. The whole time, it's the only explanation that I can give. There's literally no human reason Doss should have survived that, let alone survive that and save 75 soldiers. Doss later would famously say that he was praying the whole time. He just kept praying this prayer. Lord, please help me get one more. Just help me get one more. And sometimes it feels like we are in a war in our spiritual walk. And the reality is, spiritually, you are. But God has rescued us. He has called us. And he has sent us back to go and to help one more. So today, I hope that you are not intimidated. I hope that you're encouraged and I hope that you walk out of here believing I can't, but God can.
Let's pray together. God, thank you for all that you have blessed us with and continue to bless us with. God, thank you for those who are you are calling to our congregation that you are using to work in and through us to make your name great. God, we know that uh, it's nothing through this little church. It's nothing through our little congregation, insignificant as we may seem or appear to others. But this is your church. And you will do what it is that you want to do. God, we pray that you would just help us give. Help us save one more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. Y'all stand with us. We're going to give you just a moment to respond to however Holy Spirit is guiding you and leaning on your heart. Maybe there's somebody, maybe there's a wounded soldier that you need to pray for. Maybe you need to lay aside whatever the fear is, whatever the excuse is, you want to cast that down. You can turn the seat that you are sitting in or standing near into an altar. You can lay that excuse down. If you want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have questions about that, come forth. There's some of us up here that would love to help you if you want to join this church or follow him in baptism, whatever it is. Right now is the time for you to act, to do something. Sing as they play.